0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Good evening and welcome. Good evening. It's delightful to see the ballroom at capacity seating. I am Alan Havis, provost of Thurgood Marshall College. I would now like to provide a brief introduction to our distinguished keynote speaker. And I could go on for hours, but I have to make this short. Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., considered to be one of the most influential academic voices in America, is the Alphonse Fletcher University professor and director of the WEB Du Bois Institute for African and African-American research at Harvard University. Author of countless books, articles, essays, and reviews, Dr. Gates, who has displayed an endless dedication to bringing African-American culture to the public, has co-written, co-edited, and produced some of the most comprehensive African-American reference material ever created. In 2006, Dr. Gates wrote and produced the PBS documentary called African-American Lives, the first documentary series to employ genealogy and genetic science to provide an understanding of African-American history. In 2007, a follow-up documentary, Oprah's Roots, an African-American Lives special aired on PBS, further examining the genealogical heritage of Oprah Winfrey. The second series, African-American Lives 2, aired on PBS in February 2008. Dr. Gates also wrote and produced the documentaries, Wonders of the African World, in 2000, and America Beyond the Color Line in 2004 for the BBS and PBS networks, and authored the companion volumes to both series. PBS broadcast his newest documentary, Looking for a Lincoln, in February 2009. Even a short walk down a busy airport corridor with Dr. Gates last night, one will witness dozens of bystanders recognizing his face and asking to shake his hand, and he shook every hand. He is most recognized for his extensive research of African-American history and literature, and for developing and expanding the African-American studies program at Harvard University. The first black to have received a PhD from Cambridge University, Dr. Henry Louis Gates earned his MA and PhD in English literature from Clare College at the University of Cambridge, and his BA in history from Yale University. Before joining the faculty of Harvard in 1991, he taught at Yale. Cornell, and Duke. His numerous honors and grants include a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant in 1981, the George George Polk Award for Social Commentary in 1993, Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential Americans list in 1997, a National Humanities Medal in 1998, an election to the American Academy of Arts and Letters in 1999. He has received 49 honorary degrees, and in 2006, he was inducted into the Sons of the American Revolution after he traced his remarkable lineage back to John Redman, a free Negro who fought in the American Revolution War. It is my sincere and warm honor and distinct pleasure to now welcome Dr. Henry Louis Gates to the podium. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Alan. Thank kind introduction. Thanks to all of you all for coming out and uh, ignoring the World Series to hear me talk about genealogy and genetics. Alan was right. We flew back on the um, same plane from um, New York last night and uh, just by coincidence. And then he was kind enough to drive me um, to the hotel. And he said that <clears throat> that a few people recognized me and um, asked to shake my hand but he did, the only reason, not because of my scholarship, because I was arrested everybody knows they <laughs> 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 go, you're the beer guy you're the beer guy I go, yeah, I'm the beer guy, man, you know do you know how many people have asked me was the beer cold? I mean, they all think it's original right? <laughs> I go, the damn beer was cold, it was cold, man It was cool. How was the beer of the bottle? Oh, man, it was great. Best beer I ever had in my whole life. (laughs) I'm making a new film series on black people in Latin America. I've I've shot it. I'm just writing the scripts. It'll be on in April called Black in Latin America. And I was filming just at a middle-class family's home in Brazil. And we had been there with the film crew for about an hour. And an uncle burst in, and he just Googled me. And he'd been across town, man. He I mean, drove through traffic. He go, "You're Obama. You're the you're the the beer man. You got." It. I go, "Yeah, man." Even in Brazil, you know. What can I say? What can I say? But thank you so much for being here. I love UCSD. I love San Diego. Um, I don't know it very well. I've lectured here a long, long time ago. Nobody can even remember when. Um, but I have one of my best friends in the world, Anthony Davis, who's professor of music here, and uh, his wife, Cindy, were very close friends, and their son, Jonah, I'm his godfather, so I love uh, coming through and and seeing them, but especially, um, uh, I think whenever I uh, come near San Diego or or here, I think about um, Shirley Ann Williams, who was a great professor of African American literature and a great novelist, and um, I miss her very much, she died much too young. And at earlier at a reception, but I want to announce this in case anybody wants to um, uh, contribute, I decided to take part of my honorarium and um, offer it to the university to create a prize in Shirley Ann Williams' honor. So give it up for Shirley Ann Williams. <laughs> All right, we'll to start with a video clip, and then I'll talk, and then I'll um, answer some questions. Okay, if we can play that.
0: To PBS in February, African American Lives 2. Wow, I'm in for a ride here. I'm fired up now. Wow. I think that's pretty remarkable. It's a very personal look at American history. It's my family that we're talking about, it's not some story in a book. All of the little stories are amazing, are fascinating. A lot has been stolen from black Americans. A lot has been hidden from black Americans. And so there's always a longing to know who you are and where you come from. Intimate stories bring our country's past to life. Cindy Anderson, Charleston, Mississippi. My master was Mr. Herb Kane. Old Mr. Kane bought my father and mother in North Carolina when they was little chillin'. But after I was born, he sold my father to a man named Colonel Wright. Nine years after reb time before
2: I ever see my father again. You're the only person I know who can reach out and touch a remnant of their family's history in slavery. So that's your great-grandfather William McElton. Right. Do you see anyone who could have been his mother?
0: Well, I guess it could have been one of these two women. Emily, a woman, at $700 value. Mm -hmm. And Park, a woman, $700.
2: Right. So Park or Emily. The next record we found is dated October 1855. Emily, the woman, we thought might have been William's mother, is purchased by another McAlpine heir. And Park has disappeared by this time altogether.
0: So William is without mother... At all.
2: Williams without mother at all. Okay. Excuse me. It's
0: hard. I can only, um, you know, imagine being separated from my daughter. It's just hard. Hard to imagine. And the exploration reveals little known events in history. Take a look at this
2: Chickasaw Nation Freedmen Roll. This document is an official enrollment card for the Chickasaw Freedmen, the former slaves owned by the Chickasaw Nation. Owned by the Chickasaw Nation? Owned by the Chickasaw Nation. Your ancestors were enslaved by Native Americans. You are one of the few African Americans who was was not enslaved by by white people, (laughs) enslaved by Native Americans.
0: I don't know how I feel about that.
2: That's mind-blowing. And I had no idea. I mean t- I had neither. This is amazing. There are
0: moments of heartbreaking tragedy.
2: Now, Ruth Griffin, your grandma, had been born and raised in Blackstock, South Carolina. And her family owned land there. Did you know that? Mm-mm. I don't know anything about her background. According to the 1930 census, the Griffins had disappeared from Blackstock, South Carolina, now, we know that Ruth moved to Florida, but what happened to the rest of the family? Two of her brothers were named Meeks and Tom Griffin. I'm gonna show you their death certificates. What's it say?
0: Legal, legal electrocution. Cause of death, legal, elec- they electrocuted him. Yep.
2: We discovered that in 1913, your great uncles, Mm. along with three other men, were charged with killing a Confederate Civil War veteran, a white man named John Lewis. And the more we looked into the case, Tom, the more questions we had. So we discovered that the defense only had two days to prepare for the trial. There's no way that your two great-uncles could have prepared a defense in so short a time. But essentially, the moment that your great-uncles, Meeks and Tom, were accused of the murder, they were powerless to defend themselves. Five Negroes killed in the electric chair
0: with protestations Mm -hmm. of innocence on their lips. It's too late to get a... To overturn the conviction. Kind of well, no. Conviction, huh? it's
2: never too late. Clear their names. We can clear. We can still clear their names.
0: Despite the heartache, there are stories
2: of joyful triumph. This is a land deed from Benjamin B. Flagg, your great grandfather George Flagg's older brother.
0: I, mm-hmm. Benjamin B. Flag, of yes, B. B. Flag, mm-hmm. of Haywood County, Tennessee, mm-hmm. for the sum of $25 cash, have sold to the trustee of Flag...
2: That's right. Flags. Flag Grove Schoolhouse? Mm-hmm.
0: One acre of land.
2: One acre of land.
0: Flag Grove was my...
2: No. He made it possible to create Flag's Grove school.
0: I went to Flagrow School, elementary school. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Just great.
2: Your great-great-grandfather, Julius Caesar Tingman, served in the U.S. Colored Troops during the Civil War.
0: I'm going to cry. I can't believe it. You got me. And there's more? Guests discover who their ancestors were and where they came from. You are
2: descended from the Luba people. Fascinating. You are 33% European. Really? And you'll see there's no figure for Native America because you ain't got no Native American.
0: (laughs) Set (laughs) the record straight.
2: Do I look like an Irishman to you? I'm here to find my roots been looking for my roots, all over Africa, couldn't find anybody, so I ended up up here. Peter, you are descended from a Jewish man. Well, that's uh, surprising. Every family worth belonging to has a Jew in it somewhere. other. <laughs> this suggests that on your mother's 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 side, you are Mende. I know this is so. There's so many surprises here, but this one is
0: it's not a surprise. And we consider what it means to be African-American. You are what you have to defend. Hmm. Because it doesn't matter that I'm
2: 19% European and 81% African in America. I have to deal with the problems that black people in America have to deal (laughs) with. I have the struggles and challenges that black people in America have. Is being an African-American then cultural rather than genetic?
0: For me, it's both. For me, it it is absolutely both. Heritage is so complex
2: that we have to be
0: simple and uh, we have to consider ourselves global human beings are more alike than we are unlike and no human being can be more human than another african american lives too thank you
2: thank you now how did a guy with a Ph.D. in English Literature from the University of Cambridge get involved in doing genealogy and genetics and what difference does it make to African American history. This is the oldest Gates that we can trace. Name is Jane Gates. She was a slave. Uh, And I want to tell you the day that I met her, not literally, obviously, but when I first saw this photograph. It was July 3rd, 1960 and it was the day that they buried my grandfather, Edward St. Lawrence Gates. Edward St. Lawrence Gates was the son of Edward Gates Sr. My great-grandfather was born in slavery, 1857. You can see how fair he is. His father was a white man. And this is my grandfather, Edward St. Lawrence Gates. Born in 1879, died in 1960. Now, he was so light-complected that The kids, you know, my generation, the cousins, called him Casper behind his back. (laughs) He looked like a white man. We couldn't figure out why he looked like a white man, but he looked like a white man. So I am standing in front of his casket on July 3rd, 1960, holding my father's hand. I'm nine years old. Now, my father's still alive. Thank God my father's 97 years old, Henry Louis. He's the real Henry Louis Gates. My father is the funniest man I know. My father makes Red Fox look like an undertaker. <laughs> I'll tell you how funny he is, because this is important to the story. When I was growing up, now I was born in 1950, I wanted to be, I wanted to go to Harvard or Yale, and I wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar. I wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge. My mama, God rest her soul, um, wanted two doctors. My brother's an oral surgeon and he's five years old than I am, and there was a little old me. In my day, little color boys and color girls as we would have said in the fifties who were smart raised to be doctors. That was the next closest thing to um, divinity that you could be in the black community so that's what I was going to be. But I wanted to go to Harvard Yale and I wanted to go to Oxford Cambridge. So I got, I've always been as our people say been blessed in the classroom and um, I um, went to junior college. That's so I'm a big fan of junior college. It's junior college my freshman year and then I transferred from from Kaiser, West Virginia, from Potomac State College to Yale. And I did very, very well at Yale. And um, I was junior 5'8, I was um, graduating summa cum laude. And I'm telling you that not to brag, but because I knew that I was going to get one of these fellowships to go to Oxford or Cambridge. Because I was black, I was from West Virginia, you know, it was 1973, and I had almost straight A's. So, you know, what's not to like, right? So <laughs> I applied to all of these fellowships to go to Oxford and Cambridge. I applied for Rose. I applied for Marshall. I applied for Fulbright, for Kasby, um, Mellon. All these fellowships. And I knew I was so cocky. Particularly, I want the students to hear this. I was so cocky. I was so overconfident. that I thought I would get all seven, and I'd be pick and choose like a deck of cards, you know, like a hand. So, okay, which one I want to take. Um, but guess what? The first six, I was a finalist for the first six, and I didn't get any of those fellowships, none of those fellowships, and I was in real panic because I hadn't applied to any kind of graduate school because I was going to go to Oxford and Cambridge, right? And my girlfriend at the time was is now professor at uh, Stanford, African American woman, Linda Darling, Linda Darling Hammond. Many of you know her. We were a big junior year item at Yale. You know, that's back in the day. We had dueling afros. I had a big fro. I know it's hard to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, you could go online and look at my fate whatever the equivalent of Facebook was back then. I had a you know, Cornell West, my main man. Cornell West looked like a crew cut, that Afro. <laughs> so I tell Cornell, but he doesn't believe me either. <laughs> so I went to Linda and I was in tears, you know, what am I gonna do? She called me Skippy, because that's my nickname. My mama called me Skippy, said to Linda. So she goes, You're being phony, you're being artificial. Just go in there and be yourself. So I went in for my last, I mean, what did I have to lose, right? I went into the last fellowship, and I got this fellowship. They only picked two of these fellows to go to the University of Cambridge, and I was one of the people, and it was the happy, other than the day that my, days my two daughters were born, ladies and gentlemen, it was the happiest day of my life, without a doubt. So I went back to Calhoun College at Yale. You know, the dorms at Yale are like here, named uh, colleges. This was named for that great liberal John C. Calhoun. <laughs> we used to call it the Calhoun Plantation back in, uh, back in the Wild West days of Revolution. We'd always we'd picket and boycott trying to get them to change the name of this Calhoun College, but they wouldn't do it. So I went back to my room in Calhoun College, and I called back home, and it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'll never forget it, and Daddy picked up the phone. And I said, Daddy, Daddy, put mama on the extension phone. Remember those days you didn't have two phones. You had a phone and an extension phone. I don't know what genius thought of this system, but you had an extension phone. So Daddy was downstairs. Mama was upstairs. I go, Mama, Daddy, you'll never believe it. You'll never believe it. I'm the first Afro-American. Now remember, this is 1973. We were Afro-Americans back then. I'm the first Afro-American to get a Mellon Fellowship. I am going to Cambridge. I'm going to University of Cambridge, and my daddy, without missing a beat, said, you're the first Negro to get a melon fellowship? I go, yeah, daddy. He said, hun, they're going to call it the watermelon fellowship from now. <laughs> <laughs> now, you talk about politically incorrect. My father is the most politically incorrect person I have ever met. <laughs> so arm of my watermelon fellowship, <laughs> I went off to the University of Cambridge. I cite that just to say how funny my father is. So go back with me to July 3rd, 1960. I'm holding my father's hand, the same funny man, standing in front of his father's corpse. And I stupidly you know, looked at how white my grandfather looked. Now if he looked like Casper, alive with blood coursing through his veins, imagine how white he looked dead. He looked like he was and big coated with white paint. And I thought he looked ridiculous. And I heard this noise from my father So I thought he was laughing at how ridiculous we called him Pop. Pop Gates was. And so I started to laugh. Now, all, as we would have said then, all the colored people in Cumberland, Maryland, were gathered in the Kite Funeral Home because my grandfather was a prominent man in the black community. And I started laughing in front of my grandfather's corpse. Fortunately, I looked up to my father to share the joke, and the noise that I'd heard was tears, sobbing. He was crying hysterically over his father's death. And I was mortified at how stupid I had been, how I embarrassed myself in front of everybody and uh, all the colored people in in Cumberland, Maryland. But nobody noticed me because they were all busy staring at my father. So when I looked at him, I was mortified, and also it was the first time I ever saw my father cry. So I started to cry too. So it was a very traumatic day. So here's what happened: They buried my grandfather, and then we went back to the Gates family home. And the Gates family home is still there, still the Gates family home. My cousin John and Gates owns it. It was uh, bought by Jane Gates. This woman, this is her midwifery costume. She was a midwife. And it was, she bought it. She was a slave until 1865 and then bought a house in an all-white neighborhood in 1870. $1,200, we have the deed. Now, where'd she get that money? She didn't save her pennies in slavery, right? So, you know, this is always, and all the kids look white, so you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to begin to figure figure out where this came from, right? My father, my father took my brother and me upstairs to my, in my grandparents' house. Now, I don't know about you all, but back in the day, you didn't even, I didn't even know my grandparents had a bedroom. We never went to my, your grandparents' bedroom. You know, things were very formal. You called, I still call, my, well, my father's 97, so most of his friends have passed, but there are a couple who are, who are alive. But I still say Mr. Ozzie and Miss Mary. I never would presume to call them by their first name. You know, I don't know how it is here. You all are more casual in California. But when students come to me, I just turned 60, right? And students um, say, Well, can I call you by your first name? And I go, Yes. And they go, What's that? I said, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> when you get a PAC, then you could be talking about my first name. So anyway, but I'm old school. So my brother and I are being taken upstairs in my grandparents' house to their bedroom. We didn't even know they had it upstairs, right? So we, we, we are looking at each other like, where are we going? And my dad takes us back to their bedroom, and they have a sun porch off their bedroom. It's still there. And Daddy, I can see it just as clear as, as if it were yesterday. Daddy takes us out on the sun porch, and there's a big cabinet, a, like a wardrobe. And he opens it, and it's full of bank ledgers. My grandfather was a janitor and cleaned the First Financial Bank in Cumberland, Maryland. And he was stealing these bank ledgers. So my brother and I looked at each other like, damn, we must be rich, you know. We're to, you know, he's got bank ledgers, must be counting our money. But as soon as Daddy opened them, he was looking for something. And my brother and I, were looking over his shoulder, they were scrapbooks. My grandfather clipped newspapers, and he was—he had two fascinations that I could see even looking over his shoulder. And I own one of these. Um, well, I have a um, um, printout of one. We we had a, had a photographer take a picture of one because it's so valuable now. The one that's that's um, left in the family. He had a, a morbid fascination with death. So that every kind of death, people killed in airplane crashes, people killed in the railroad crashes, people killed in automobile crashes, but particularly the war did. Every day in the newspaper, the number of people were killed that the day before in World War II. He clipped it every day. So Daddy was turning these pages looking for something. His other area of special concern was black history. He had all these articles. The first Negro judge in... Um, New York City, 1942, I mean I was amazed to see that he was a race man, you know, deep down. And that was a good thing. Um, you know, what Adam Clayton Powell was doing in Harlem and in, in Congress, and, and lots of things like it. Marion Anderson's famous concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. All that's in these um, multiple volumes, these scrapbooks that were made out of uh, bank ledgers. But Daddy's starting, he's looking for something, looking for something, and finally he finds it and he goes, here you boys look at this and it was an obituary and it was an obituary dated January 6 1888 and it said died this day in Cumberland Maryland Jane Gates an estimable colored woman an estimable colored woman daddy said that is the oldest Gates and I never want you to forget her well the next day was the 4th of July Oh, well, we went home that night, and before I went to bed, we were always... My father worked two jobs. He worked at a paper mill in the day, and he was a janitor in the evening. So we always had... um, You know, among the black community, we always were very comfortable. And I always had my own bedroom, and so did my brother. And more importantly for my mom, I always had a desk and had a bookcase. And that night before I went to bed, I had one of those red Webster's dictionaries. Remember those Webster's dictionaries? And I kept it on my desk, and the last thing I did before I went to bed, I looked up, Alan, the word estimable, because I didn't know what it meant. And I thought, wow, this lady must be very special. The next day was the 4th of July, and we had the what we used to call the colored picnic, the colored cookout, and everybody black in our segregated town. Piedmont, West Virginia, by the way, is halfway between Pittsburgh and Washington on the Potomac River. and Cumberland, It's right on the Maryland-West Virginia border. The Gateses lived in Cumberland, Maryland. The Coleman's, my mother's family, lived 20 miles away in um, on the West Virginia side. So we went to the cookout. And on the way back, I stopped at Red Bull's newsstand in the middle of our town, population 2,000 people, an Irish-Italian paper mill town with 2,000 people when I was born, 386 of whom were black. All right, so you get the picture. I stopped at Red Bull's newsstand. I bought a composition book. And you know what I did that night? I interviewed my parents about their family tree. I asked them what their mother's name was, their father's name, where they were born. I had absolutely no precedent for doing this. I have no explanation today of why I did it. But since that day in July 1960, I have been obsessed with my own um, family tree. So that's how I got interested. Now, I was just a little kid, so I would get bored with these composition books Sometimes I would even lose them. So I would start the whole process over again. But I never lost the passion for finding out about my ancestors on the Coleman side and the Gates side. And we could go back to Jane Gates, and this was her son. She only told her children, she had five children, she only said they were fathered by a white man, which was obvious if you look at her kids, and they all had the same father. But she took the secret of this white man's identity to her grave. And you know how it was back in the day. I mean, way back in the day. People didn't want to talk about slavery. You know, we've lost so many records because our people have suffered so much, and they don't want to relive that pain. And it's a great loss to us as scholars and as people, and as a people, not to have that record. So she took the identity of her lover, the man who fathered all of her children, to to her grave. But this was her son, Edward, who... Um, uh, He had a 200-acre farm where my father was born. It's still there, Patterson's Creek, West Virginia. And then, as I said, this was his son, Edward St. Lawrence Gates. Well, cut to 1977. You could say, what's the greatest event in the history of miniseries and TV? Roots. So you could say since 1977, I've had one serious case of Roots envy. You know, I had this little composition book. I could go back to my great-great, I mean, my great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother on my father's side, on my mother's side, great-grandmother. But that was it. There was Alex Haley coming out of the blue, could go all the way to Africa. He could go to the ship that, that brought his African ancestors over, and then he went all the way back to Gambia. So I was totally jealous of Alex Haley. And um, I, so I had a profound and severe case of Ruth's in me. But I figured, well, I'll never, um, only Alex Haley could do that, right? So I got to know Quincy Jones in 1999. Anthony Appia, my dear friend, and I edited the Africana Encyclopedia. And then we founded Africana.com, which we, and um, we needed some investors. And by this time, it's complicated, but I gotten to be friends with Quincy Jones, still a great friend of mine. And um, Quincy introduced me to Alex Haley. And more than that... Quincy, it turned out, was obsessed with genealogy as well. Quincy scored the music for roots. So for Christmas, he would give people their family trees. So, you know, I thought about that, and, uh, but there was nothing I could do about that. Well, here's a funny thing happened. You never know. The Bible says be careful what you wish for. In the year 2000, a young black geneticist named Dr. Rick Kittles, who at the time was teaching at Howard University, sent me a letter. He's now at the University of Chicago Medical School. And he said that he was asking various African-American men if they would um, submit themselves to this new test. And through this test, he could trace on your mother's line where in Africa you were from. Man, that was some serious stuff. And I said, yeah, I mean, I called him right away. And I said, definitely. And he said that... um, of all the people he'd, <laughs> he'd written to, nobody was writing him back. And I later, I couldn't figure out why, but I later found out why. So I said, would you want me to come to Washington? He goes, no, I'll come up to um, Harvard Square. It's where I was living. So in a, about a week later, he showed up. And now... I've had many operations. I I broke my hip when I was playing football when I was about 14, it was misdiagnosed by country doctors. I've had a zillion operations on my leg, right? So I know about having blood extracted. If you could see my veins, my veins is, just look at a vial and blood pours out, right? I'm I'm very easy to get my blood. Well, after half an hour, I realized that two things, that Dr. Rick Kittles is a brilliant geneticist, but he's not brilliant at extracting blood. (laughs) I also realized why no other black male was stupid enough to let him come up to try to take their blood. (laughs) Because that brother kept poking around, and I thought, damn, this Kunta stuff is hard work. (laughs) How badly do I want to know where I'm from in Africa? But I really wanted to know, I'd wanted to know since I was nine years old, so, you know, let's go for it. So finally, see, at the time, you had to extract a lot of DNA in order to run the test. Now you just swab your cheek or spit in a test tube, depending on the company that that you use We could talk about that a little bit later. So it's very easy, and it's very painless. So I waited, and I waited, and I waited. You know, Rick Kittles went back to Washington. I waited, waited, waited for the result. And I didn't hear from him. So finally, I called him. And you know how people do. uh, He picked up the phone after I called him about a million times. He goes, oh, man, I was just about to return your phone call. (laughs) I said, Rick. What's up, man? Where am I from in Africa? Where are my people? You know, I want to jump on a plane and go. I thought I'd buy some land, you know. (laughs) Get a fine little African sister, you know, to hook up. I was single at the time, don't get me wrong. I'm still single. (laughs) So he said, well, we had to run. Your results were anomalous. And we had to run them many times. But we finally have figured out where you're from, you are descended on your mother's side from the Nubian people. Now all African-American, not all African-Americans, many African-Americans want to be descended from one or two ethnic groups. Either the Zulu, because the Chaka Zulu and the Zulu kicked the English in the behind in the Boer Wars, right? Until they finally were overcome. But you want to be Zulu or you want to be Nubian. Who were the Nubians? The Nubians were the black pharaohs, right? The Nubians are in the Bible, 25th dynasty was a Nubian dynasty. In Egyptian art, they always hated the Nubians. Nubians are always represented as darker. You know, they were warring kingdoms. And Nubia ran from what today's Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, up to the Aswan Dam, the second cataract in the Nile um, River. And so a Nubian, and all these people wanted to be Nubians, descended from the black pharaohs. So my friend, Malefi Asante, you know, the founder of Afrocentricity, we argue a lot in public, but we're very good friends privately. I joke, every time he attacks me, I get a raise at Harvard, so it's cool. And uh, so I attack him, you know. We do what Malcolm and Martin couldn't do, you know, <laughs> set it up and then we go split the money and slap five and go to Sylvia's head fried chicken. <laughs> Believe me, that's a much better way to function than hating each other. <laughs> so I called Malefi first thing. I said, Malefi, I just got my results back. I am a Nubian. Where are you from? <laughs> I am the true African prince. <laughs> my friend, Anthony Appia, who is whose uncle was the Asantehini, the king of the Asante people. And when Rick Kittle sent me a certificate announcing I was Nubian, Anthony Appiah looked at it and said, what a ton of rubbish. (laughs) Now, why would he say that? Well, there's a slight problem with being either Zulu or Nubian, if you're (laughs) African-American. You know what the problem is? None of our ancestors who came here in slavery came from South Africa, the Zulu people, or from Nubia. None. Zero. Egypt is over here. The slaves came from the area from Senegal down to Angola. Ninety-seven percent of the slaves came from that region, all right? So you know how long it would take it to walk from (laughs) Sudan to Senegal or to Angola? It just didn't happen. So I looked at Anthony and I said, you're just jealous. (laughs) Because I am a Nubian prince. I didn't care, I had it framed. I put it up in my living room so everybody could see (laughs) that I'm from royalty. So, I didn't think about it. I thought maybe it was strange. Maybe it was on a trade route. You know, there were great Muslim trade routes. You know, today, this is important for the students. Um, in my time, we were taught that the Africans were these benighted people and they were too stupid to build a boat or to be curious about the world and cross the, the Sahara Desert. It was rubbish. Africans were just as curious as anybody else. The Sahara Desert was a highway, it wasn't a barrier. Um, so, I thought, well, and there were great trade routes. So I thought maybe my Nubian descendant had come over and ended up being tricked by some white man (laughs) and ended up in Maryland or Virginia or something. (laughs) So that was cool. And uh, if I needed an interpretation, believe me, I could have produced one. (laughs) So, and by the way, you know the Zulu thing? When we gave, when Oprah was finally in, in the first series and we gave her a DNA test, Basically, the next day, she went to South Africa to announce that she was opening her what became the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy. She was in an auditorium of like 75,000 people or something, and she announced that she just had the test and that she was Zulu. So I, it broke on CNN. I was sitting in my living room, minding my own business, and said, Oprah Winfrey's a Zulu. So I called Rick Kittles, and I said, Rick, did you tell Oprah she was a Zulu? He goes, no, man. She made that up herself. <laughs> It's a true story, it's a true story. I would lie to make you laugh, but I'm telling you a true story. So I said, Rick, are you in your lab? He said, yeah. I said, is anybody there? He said, no. I said, when the results come in, make her Zulu, man. (laughs) You know? I said, you back there making it up anyway. Nobody believe you can take some spit and figure out a tribe? What, are you crazy? <laughs> so anyway, I was a Nubian, and it was cool. Well, here's the miracle, one of the many miracles, thank God, that happened in my life. I got up in the middle of the night, and to be honest, I have to tell you, I got up to go to the bathroom. And I was standing there in the bathroom, minding my own business. <laughs> And I had an idea, and what was the idea. I would take this passion I had from the time I was nine years old in genealogy, and I would get eight prominent African-Americans, and I would trace their family tree back into the abyss of slavery, back to the time when the paper trail disappears, because inevitably, it disappears for all of us, all of our ancestors. It just wasn't a paper trail. You can't trace people. There's no printed record. And then when the paper trail disappears, I would do their DNA and tell them where they were from in Africa. I was so excited, I had tears in my eyes. And I couldn't wait till the next day. The next day I called my buddy Quincy Jones. Now Quincy is like a vampire. Quincy is up all night long because he was a jazz musician. And when the sun comes up, he goes to bed. So you can't do business with Quincy till after three o'clock in the afternoon. That's just the way it is. So I waited till three o'clock in the afternoon and I called out to Bel Air or up to Bel Air now, yeah, I forget where I am, San Diego, and um, I said, and he picked up, and this person put him on the line, I said, Q, would you, if I could do for you what Alex did, would you be in a PBS series? I had no money, I had nothing, just an idea, and this is very important to the students, I just had an idea, and I said, would you be in it, and he said, could you do that? And I said, Yeah. He said, does it hurt? (laughs) And I lied and said, no, no, it doesn't hurt. (laughs) I said, are you in? He said, I'm in. Now, who's his best friend? Oprah Winfrey. So I said, okay, man, you're in. I waited, beat, beat. I said, would you call Oprah and ask her to be in? He went, "Uh, no. (laughs) But he said, I'm going to do something, you know, because everybody hustles Oprah. And if you're a friend, you can't be bringing ideas, you know, because people want Oprah to write a check to do everything. Hmm. So he said, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to give you her secret name and address. And you write her a letter. And I, no guarantees, man. And so I wrote a letter. Dear Ms. Winfrey. And, you know, I figured it was like throwing a, a, a message in a bottle, throwing it in the ocean, right? A week later, it was a Sunday, my cell phone rang, and it was Quincy calling. And I said, hey, Q, what's happening? And a deep woman's voice said, Dr. Gates. This is Oprah Winfrey. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> what are you talking about? Oprah Winfrey was calling me. <laughs> people don't call, powerful people don't call you with bad news. Somebody told me that a long time ago. If she was calling, it was good news. She didn't call and say, I got your letter and no. <laughs> and don't write me again. <laughs> She said, I'd be honored to be in the series. Now, students, why is this important? Because to do the series, I needed $6 million. And it's hard to raise $6 million. So, but when I walked into these corporations and I said, how would you like your product associated with the whole world, knowing what ethnic group Oprah Winfrey is descended from? You know what it was like? You see that ceiling? It was like that ceiling opened up and a giant ATM machine came. (laughs) Shh. And they said, how much you need? <laughs> it's like that Eddie Murphy routine. Remember when Eddie Murphy told him, he becomes white, and he goes to the bank, and they, he goes, once you wanted to fill out the application, they go, what application? There are none of them here. How much money do you need? <laughs> well, that's how it was for me. And the result was African-American lives. Um, and this was the poster. I don't know if you could see it. But in the upper left-hand corner, Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi heard that we were doing the series and called and demanded to be in the series. Uh, Tony and, and I graduated from um, Yale, as we, I said earlier. Our classmate was Dr. Ben Carson. And you know Ben Carson's chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins, the first surgeon successfully to separate Siamese twins and joined at the head. Um, you know, I, wanted, I didn't want all entertainers and athletes. I wanted to show white people, as we say, that they were, you know, black doctors and neurosurgeons. You know, his brother was serious. Mae Jemison, the first black astronaut. Graduated African-American studies major at Stanford, then went to medical school, first black female astronaut. You know, you can't get more scientific than that. There's the big O under her. There's Quincy in the middle. Chris Tucker, I'd gotten to know Chris Tucker by this time, who's, I think, a genius, one of the funniest people. Uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes, I wanted a man of the cloth or a woman of the cloth. And T.D.'s my homeboy from West Virginia. Not that many black people in West Virginia. So I wanted T.D. to be in it. And um, then my colleague under Chris is Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, who's a uh, professor at Harvard of sociology. And the result was African American lives. It was a total risk, a total gamble, and you know what? It was the, got the biggest rating of any documentary in the history of PBS. Thank you. Well, I learned, to, um, I had to do a lot of research to put this together. And I learned a few facts that I want to share with you, and then um, I'll stop and I'll uh, answer some questions. But this is fascinating. It has implications for everyone of African descent in this room. We're all Africans. I was talking to the students at a great meeting this morning. We're all descended from Africa, but 50,000 years ago. Um, And most of that African DNA, as it were, has disappeared. And it's complicated to explain. Um, But... What we do is test people, test your ancestry back for the last, with one test, the last 500 years since the time of Columbus. And that would obtain pertain to the people who are black, quote unquote, in this room. Well, um, when I went to Harvard in 1991, I raised money to count the slaves. There were a group of scholars who were trying to count the number of Africans brought to the New World, the entire New World, in the slave trade. And some were in Liverpool, some were in Angola, some were in Cuba, some were in Brazil, all these scholars. And someone came to me and said, if you raise money, you could bring these people together, it would be historic. And that's what we did. The result, you could go home and look at it. Um, it's free online. It's called the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database. And these scholars looked at 36,000 voyages of slave ships. It was capitalism. So the records were there. It was property, right? And those records are still there. And guess what? They counted, 12.5 million Africans shipped between 1502 and 1867 to the New World. 12.5 million, 15% about died in the Middle Passage. So let's say 11.2 million, we know, Africans, our ancestors, got off the slave ships in the New World. Here's the amazing fact. Of that 11.2 million, only 450,000 came to the United States only 450,000 Africans came to the United States between 1619 and well the end of slavery was 1865 but most of the, 99% of the slaves are here by 1820 all the rest over 10.5 million went to places essentially south of uh, San Diego, Texas and Miami they all went to the Caribbean and Latin America isn't that astonishing and we know that over 5 million of those slaves, that's with what this uh, slide shows, went from Africa to South America. Um, just under uh, 4.5 million were shipped directly from Africa to the Caribbean and 388,000 Africans were shipped directly from Africa to the United States and another 60,000 touched down briefly in the Caribbean and then came to the United States. And we know where they were shipped from. So that we know that 16.7% of our ancestors came from Eastern Nigeria, Igbo land. Um, 2.4% came from Benin and Western Nigeria. 24% came from Congo, Angola. That means if I did the DNA for every black person in this room, one in four of you would descend from an ethnic group that is clustered around Congo, Angola. It is an amazing, amazing tool, and this thing didn't exist Fifteen years ago, um, so that we and we know that um, another 24% of our ancestors came from Senegal and Gambia, Senegambia, and that's where remember Alex traced his family to. So it's an incredible, um, it's a, an incredible tool. We also know that how how American are African Americans? Well, by the day Thomas Jefferson, who was the father of um, the Declaration of Independence and the father of Sally Heming's children, by the way, the day that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, 75% of our African ancestors were here in this country. By 1800, 80% of our ancestors were here. And by 1820, 99.7% of our ancestors were here. Here's another amazing statistic. 1860, there were 3.9 million slaves, according to the federal census. and there were 488,000 free-colored, as they were called, or free uh, African-Americans. Now, this is the shock. Of that figure of 488,000 free African-American people, only, um, I'm sorry, of that figure, there were only 225,000 living in the North. More free Negroes lived in the South and stayed in the Confederate states and the border states where slavery was free through the Civil War, then lived in the North. This is counterintuitive because we're raised to think that the slave was the first to read and first to write was the first to run away, as Israel read um, puns. But that's not the way it was. And why would that be? Because in many of these states, when you were free, your master, in order to discourage your master from freeing you, your master had to give you property and had to give you enough money to survive. So what are you going to do? Go to New York? Go to Philadelphia where you knew um, no one, or stay in the South, and that's what they did. This is the kind of amazing stuff that we discovered. Now, we gave everybody in the Series 3 test. Um, If you're a man, we gave you a Y-DNA test. If you're a woman who had a male descendant of the father or the grandfather, we gave that man a Y-DNA test. The reason the men are men in this room is because of Y-DNA, but women don't have Y-DNA. We all have mitochondrial DNA. And your mitochondrial DNA, you d- you inherit from your mother. Your Y DNA from your father. If you're a man, is exactly the same. Your mitochondrial DNA from your mother is exactly the same. Yours is whether you're a man or woman is the same as your mother's. Hers is the same as her mother's. Hers is the same as her mother's. That's why they can trace you back to Lucy or trace us all back to Lucy through your DNA. And finally, the pie chart is your admixture, in which we um, examine how uh, how much African ancestry you have how much Native American or Asian ancestry, or how much European ancestry. Um, And this chart shows you the number of ancestors you have of the sixth generation. We have um, two parents, you have four grandparents, you have eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, all the way up to 64 uh, uh, great-great-grandparents. and this is how your DNA markers are passed down. Your Y-DNA is passed down from a father to his son's, and a mitochondrial DNA is passed down from a mother to the son's or daughter. And what we do to trace your African ancestry, we have this huge database. We go all over Africa testing people, and we say, what is your ethnic group? And they might say Igbo or Yoruba. And then we test this young lady right there. And if you match in the computer, it's like, ding! If you have the same mitochondrial DNA structure as the person who says they're EBO, and lots of EBO people, then that means you share an EBO ancestor in common. It's as simple and as complicated as that. We call it guilt by association. And that's how we find. Now, this is, a, and I'm going to wrap up and take a few questions, because uh, they have to take me to dinner after this thing is over. We sign books, because I could never eat before I talk, and I want a glass of wine. I, I can't come to California and not do that. but. <laughs> Doing these series, I found the the big three myths of African-American genealogy. The first one is that I am descended from an Igbo princess, and she was so beautiful that her foot never touched the sordid soil of slavery, that there was a German count walking by the shipyard, the docks in Charleston, and he looked over and saw my great-great-grandmother and said, man, she is fine. That is my Igbo princess. And he goes and he buys her and makes her his wife, and they live happily ever after. It never happened. <laughs> it never happened. And Malcolm Gladwell. I was on Martha's Vineyard a couple summers ago, a very prominent African-American woman said to me, I said, do you know where your ancestors were in slavery? She said, we were never slaves. So get point number two. Because my great-great-grandmother was an Igbo princess. And there was a German walking by. And he bought it. I go, oh, really? And the next day, and I told her that was true. She got very angry at me, so I decided to be cool about how I told people that they were believing this. The next day, Malcolm Gladwell, who's in my last series, Face of America, I called him, and I said, Malcolm, would you be in my new series? He said, yeah. And I said, how far can you trace your ancestor? He said, oh, man, I'm so glad I got somebody to tell. You know, we found out, I'm descended from an Igbo princess. <laughs> I go, yeah, yeah, I heard that story. The third myth, okay, I want everybody to be honest, just the African-Americans in this room. How many of you are descended from a Native American? Just raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. There you go. Look at all them Native Americans. Well, I got news for you. None of y'all descended from Native (laughs) Americans. My grandmother had high cheekbones and straight black hair. Every Negro I know claimed that in 1950. Well, guess what the DNA evidence shows? Only 5% of the African American people, one out of 20, have any significant Native American ancestry. But, but one out of 20. But on the other hand, 58% of the African American people have a significant amount of white ancestry. You know that those high cheekbones and straight black hair? That came from your white great-great-grandfather. <laughs> The average African-American and the average Native American never saw each other. I don't know about you all, but you can't sleep with, the internet can do a lot, but you can't sleep with somebody you can't see. (laughs) The average admixture for African-Americans is the average black person is 77 percent black, um, 17.5 percent European, and 5 percent Native American. Now I went to see, I was telling the students this morning, I went to see LeBron lose against the Celtics on Tuesday night. I'm very happy to say. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I was thinking if I did the DNA of all the black men on the court, which was everybody on the court when I got this idea, <laughs> if I did the DNA of all the black men on the court or all the black men in this room, one in three of you descend from a white man. 30 to 35% of all African American men and their Y DNA. Goes to Europe, not to Africa, because of enforced um, sexuality, sex, you know, rape, or, and, at, at the best, an unequal power relationship. Um, because you know, I found uh, Morgan Freeman in African American Lives. His um, white overseer impregnates black slave. That's Morgan's great great grandmother. So you figure it's rape, right? Well, guess what? I ended up showing him their tombstones. They lived together illegally in Mississippi from the time of the abolition of slavery to their death. So they had some kind of connection. So that maybe, you know, maybe it is possible. I don't know. You know, it's complicated. How can you love somebody who owns you? But who am I to say? But it was very complicated. But in most cases it was enforced sexuality at the least and rape at best. Here are the figures. 1% of the African American people have at least 50% 50 European ancestry the equivalent of one parent. 196 of the African-American people have at least 25% European ancestry. 58% of us have at least 12.5% European ancestry, the equivalent of one great-grandparent. And only 5% of the African-American people have at least 12.5% Native American ancestry, equivalent of one great-grandparent. So for those of you who your hand, I've identified the uh, Native American tribe you're from. It is the Blackfoot tribe. That is where I am. So, ladies and gentlemen, in conclusion, what we are trying to do is use the new sophisticated tools of genealogy, uh, ancestry tracing, and genetics, not to take our people back to the future, but to take them black to the future. Thank you very much.